When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating whether or not the police are systematically racist, and we're starting right now. With Jangles' opening statement, thanks so much for being with us, Jangles. The floor is all yours. Hey, thanks you very much for having me. So I uh, go by Justin. I have a YouTube channel called Jangles Science Side, where I go over the science behind social issues and comedy, because I hate jokes and I never want you to laugh. So, all right, let's get right into it. I wrote my opening statement like a nerd, so, you know, uh, what better way to endear myself than sound like a robot right out the gate. Cool. All right. So proving systemic racism, whether we're talking about the criminal justice system or any other institution, does not mean proving that all or most or even some of the members of that institution are explicitly or implicitly biased. Rather, it's about showcasing how the systems themselves operate to perpetuate disparity and inequality, how history influences procedures that produce outcomes that inform procedures that produce more outcomes. Uh, Systemic racism perpetuates racial inequalities regardless of bias, which is not to say that the people operating within them are not influenced by biases of either past or present biases. So let's start with the facts all of us can agree on. So my primary source uh, for this entire opening statement is the 2015 report from the Sentencing Project, which would later be given to the United Nations. So the United States has the largest criminal justice system in the world, with nearly 7 million individuals under some sort of correctional control at year-end 2015, including more than 2 million in federal, state, or local prisons and jails. Black people are about five times as likely as their white counterparts to be arrested for a crime during their lifetime, with one in three black men born in 2001 likely to go to prison at some point compared to one in 17 white men if current trends continue, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Black people comprise a disproportionately high percentage of arrests, being 13% of the population, but making up 39% of the arrests for violent crimes and 29% of the arrests for property crimes, with additional data gathered that seems to point to these being fairly accurate estimations of people who actually commit those crimes. Black and Hispanic people in the United States do commit more crime than white people, and this is largely explanatory for the racial disparity in the prison population. However, there are still very important reasons to believe that systemic racism is still at play in the criminal justice system. Not all of the racial disparities in the prison population can be explained by crime rates alone. A ton of studies conducted by the criminal justice uh, scholars that I have uh, in my notes here point to actual crimes committed accounting for only between about 61 and 80 percent of black overrepresentation in prison, with the remaining uh, percentage being something else. There are more factors at play here, and disregarding race and history as a factor in this disparity would constitute an incomplete analysis. 
One, for example, there are disparate racial impacts of ostensibly race-neutral policies and laws. High crime rate areas attract more policing, which will catch more crime in high rate, uh, crime rate areas. An example would be the vast discrepancy in arrests for marijuana between black and white individuals, despite similar usage rates. Additionally, sentencing laws may take into account factors like school zones that result in harsher sentences for the same crime that disproportionately affects uh, areas with high urban density simply by way of geographic location. So same crime, if, uh, if it's caught in the, uh, a place that is close to a school, because of school zoning laws, it'll result in a harsher sentencing, and that's regardless of the crime produced. And I don't think I have to say that like people, uh, black people are more likely to live in concentrated urban areas. Two, I also believe that it's pretty unlikely that the human beings employed as police officers and prosecutors and judges are entirely free from prejudice. There's a narrative that overt forms of prejudice like those of the Jim Crow era have fallen away in favor of more unconscious forms of bias, which is certainly true in a way, but I think that this implies a direct link when there may not be one. If you grew up being taught that prejudice is wrong and a thing of the past, but still see these racial disparities resulting from colorblind laws, you in your capacity as a police officer or judge might develop a sort of post hoc justification for uh, differential racial treatment. Experimental research shows that citizens and police officers alike are more likely to treat darker suspects more harshly. Overworked defense attorneys may exhibit racial bias in how they triage their heavy caseloads, and judges are more likely to sentence people of color to longer sentences, uh, even after accounting for differences in crime severity and criminal history. In fact, the less severe the offense, the more discretion the judge has the more likely they are to give those harsher sentences because young black men in particular are perceived as being more dangerous than their white counterparts. Three, we must also take the self-perpetuating cycles of poverty into account. Black people are more likely to be poor. Poor people are more likely to be treated unfairly in the criminal justice system, and criminals are then more likely to be poor. Low-income people have less access to quality legal teams and are more likely to be, uh, to be detained prior to conviction, which themselves correlate with harsher convictions and less favorable plea deals. Poor people are subject to harsher risk assessments that punish them for not having access to employment or transportation, and alternative treatment options involve either expensive rehab programs they can't afford or publicly funded treatment options that are woefully inadequate. Four, excuse me, four, and finally, we have to discuss how the system perpetuates itself. The criminal justice system is an institution that primarily reacts to rather than prevents crime, and it's seen in the public eye as our best approach to the issue of crime. When a politician declares themselves tough on crime in order to gain popularity, something that has historically been quite effective in getting votes, they always mean harsher punishments for criminals rather than addressing the lack of opportunities that drive the vast majority of street crime in the first place. There is a hostility and demonization of even petty criminals in the United States that basically ensure that a segment of the population are guaranteed to be trapped in a vicious cycle. Most people released from prison end up back in it because most other options to live a normal life have been stripped away, and since contributing to those other options would be seen as soft on crime, they have been historically unpopular. Those four features, the disparate racial impact of ostensibly race-neutral policies and laws, racial bias among criminal justice professionals, resource allocation decisions that, disan uh, dis that disadvantage low-income people, and criminal justice policies that exacerbate socioeconomic inequalities, those are what constitute systemic racism on the part of the criminal justice system in the United States. And only one of them actually involves anything close to what most people would consider racist actions. Systemic racism is not simply police officers killing unarmed black men because they are racist. 
Systemic racism is angry white union members decreasing their support for the public safety net when colored people were brought to the table by Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, viewing public resources as a zero-sum game that necessitated competition and justification for viewing black people as less deserving, leading to fewer legitimate, uh, legitimate opportunities for economic and social mobility for people of color and a damaged view of American politics and law being seen as for the benefit of someone else if you were not white. It's history influencing policy that produces outcomes that further influence policy. The acceptance of systemic racism is an answer to a binary question. Can these racial disparities be addressed or are they innate? Are they the result of policies past and present or are they biology manifesting itself in society? I contend that they are the result of policy and that they can be addressed politically, which falls in line with the current scientific literature on race that recognizes race as a political label rather than a genetic one. Whether it's revising policies and laws with disparate racial impacts, addressing implicit racial bias among criminal justice professionals, reallocating resources to create a fair uh, playing field, or revising policies that exacerbate socioeconomic inequalities to redirect public spending toward crime prevention and drug treatment, addressing systemic racism is a political solution to a political problem, and it offers the best way forward for all of us. You got it. Thank you very much, Jingles, for that opening statement. And want to let you know, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we want to let you know, we hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you are from, no matter where you are in the political spectrum. With that, we're going to kick it over to Sean Last. Thanks so much. The floor is all yours, Sean. All righty. I also wrote out an opening statement. I conceived the topic a little more narrowly than jangles did as will be evident part of me wants to try to change it live on the spot as i read it but i will resist the temptation to do that um so anyway when i say that uh the criminal justice system is not systematically racist what i primarily mean by that is that black and white people who act in the same way are generally either going to be treated the same way or in fact that the criminal justice system will tend to treat the black people better uh, saying that black people get treated worse by the criminal justice system because they act worse, maybe denying that systemic racism exists, or depending on how you want to define it, that may be, in fact, just defending its existence. Uh, but that's sort of besides the point. I'd like to focus on the empirical substance of this and not the semantics. Now, in a way, it's inherently difficult to refute the view that I've laid out because the variables used in criminology are typically very vague, too vague to exactly match behavior. So, for instance, many papers will control for, quote, unquote, criminal history in a way that equates to people who have the same same number of previous convictions, regardless of what those convictions were, uh, or even when they compare more narrow categories of conviction, they run into problems like, for instance, the fact that there's a lot of variation within the category of quote unquote assault. But even using these sorts of vague metrics, a lot has been shown to be not due to bias, which we might otherwise think would be. Uh, so for instance, it's been shown that the rate at which police stop people in their cars seems to be pretty equal once you control for driving behavior and the like, that if you compare the rate at which people call the police on members of different races to the rate at which they're arrested for crimes of victims, that those arrest rates match those police report rates, that the incarceration rates in turn match the arrest rates, and setting the arrest rates aside, you can just control for psychological measures like IQ and general uh, violence and that this reduces to insignificance the racial difference in incarceration rates, uh, that even though most of the literature does show that there's a racial difference in the propensity to be the subject of uh, force being used by police, that meta-analytically this has been shown to be just due to publication bias and that removing that publication bias 
produces that effect in significance at the rate at which uh, black people are killed by police roughly matches or actually is not as high as the rate at which they engage in potentially fatal action against police officers that comparing sufficiently similar crimes makes it so that the difference in sentence length goes away, et cetera. So that a lot of this stuff, I think, even using the sort of metrics that we have can just be accounted for. And I think we'll probably end up talking about a few of those. Uh, you can also try to exactly match behavior in a way that these variables can't by creating artificial situations. Uh, but this, of course, will lead to justified skepticism about the generalizability of the results to the real world. So for instance, there's simulation training and in that training, police officers are more reluctant to shoot a suspect when they're black. And generally speaking, uh, these sorts of experimental tests of racial bias in behavior, as opposed to a kind of implicit bias, but an actual behavioral bias, tend to find that white Americans exhibit no net bias. Uh, these two lines of evidence, broad lines of evidence uh, that I've laid out, imperfect as they are, I think are important for interpreting situations where we don't know what the answer is. So uh, to take two examples. So one example has to do with drugs. Now, uh, people talk a lot about the fact that black people in surveys say that they use drugs at about the same rate that white people do and yet are arrested a lot more for drug crime. And there are a few things you can say about that. You can say that we know by drug testing people, the black people are more likely than white people to lie about that. And so that those results are not valid. Uh, we also know that black people are more likely to do various things like buy drugs from strangers, buy drugs outside, et cetera, which put them at a higher risk of being arrested. But we don't have data exactly showing that black and white drug users who act the exact same way will have the exact same propensity to be arrested. So how should we interpret that? Well, my view is that we should have a sort of default presumption against a racial bias explanation if we know that this same system involving these same police officers exhibits no racial bias in a bunch of other contexts. I'll take a, another example that I think might be relevant. We don't know for sure why it is that black people are pulled over more when the light goes down, that is when the, the sun goes down when there's literally less light. We know that generally speaking, you can go in and for instance with a camera measure how much people are speeding and once you control for that, there is no racial difference in the propensity to be stopped, but we don't know exactly why it is that when there's less light out, black people are less likely to be pulled over. And by process of elimination, uh, we might say that, well, there's only a few explanations possible that are left. Uh, so for the sake of argument, let's say that it's either racial bias or the fact that black people are overrepresented among criminal suspects. And so get pulled over more when they can be seen to match those suspects. Now, in a vacuum, there's no reason to prefer either of these explanations. And if they were exhaustive, they would each have a 50% chance of being true. Uh, but the knowledge, again, that the same system is unbiased in other contexts decreases the probability of that racism explanation as the correct explanation relative to this other explanation or really any other explanation. And the same sort of reasoning can be applied in various other contexts in which we don't yet have full models that totally explain racial disparities in outcome. Uh, the final thing that I want to talk about has something to do with falsifiability. Because sometimes when you talk about stuff like this, and I make the kinds of arguments that I've already made, someone on the left will accuse me of having an impossible bar of evidence. And I think this accusation is wrongheaded for many reasons, uh, but one that I think deserves special attention that I want to talk about here uh, is, is slightly a little bit technical, and that's why I want to talk about it here um, in the opening. So. When you build a statistical model predicting something like whether someone will be arrested, part of your output tells you how much of the difference the difference is 
between people in whether they will be arrested is predictable on the basis of that model. And that's just called the proportion of variance the model explains. And generally speaking, models used to demonstrate racial bias often cited in criminology literature, uh, the leftists like to point to, they often explain something like 30% of the variance in the outcome being looked at. Now, given this, it is not a mere matter of speculation, but demonstrable fact that these models have failed to account for the, the variables which explain the vast majority of the variance in the outcome, uh, despite already including traditional measures of things like offense severity, criminal history, race, et cetera. And so to think that they've narrowed the space of possible explanations so much that we are justified in inferring that there's probably no missing variable from our model, which might explain the significance that the model is attributing to race uh, is, I think, pretty silly. Um, And I think I'm going to stop it there. I didn't realize until just a few hours ago that this was supposed to be 12 minutes long. And I, and I have not actually added enough to it yet to make it be anywhere near 12 minutes long. I don't think so. I'll just uh, stop there. You got it. Well, no problemo. And we're going to jump into open discussion, but also want to let you know, folks, as mentioned, we have many juicy debates on science, religion, and politics. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, as we have many more to come. And with that, thanks, gentlemen. The floor is all yours for that open dialogue. So two uh, big things. There's like, you know, both of us listed about 20 different points in our opening statements. So I don't think it's reasonable for both of us to like go point by point. But there's two major ones that I want to address from yours. One is that one of the things I said is that racial disparity alone or like racial bias alone could not be explanatory of most of the racial disparity in arrests. I even uh, conceded that uh, the rate of arrests pretty closely matched the rate of actual uh, offenses perpetrated. So I'm not saying that racial bias is primary uh, racial bias on the part of the police officer is the primary determinant of the racial disparities in the criminal justice system but if it is any factor at all it's worth considering all right even as so if even as and i'm not accusing you of anything even as someone who like uh, believes in like the biological reality of race you probably wouldn't want messy data you probably wouldn't want bias interfering with the arrest records uh when it, when it comes to like arrests so yeah the question, the more interesting question is, and the one that I pose is like the main factor in uh, proving systemic racism is that it doesn't have to have any bias within any individual actor at all. So I guess here's a question. Do you think that the historical uh, inertia of, of objectively racist policies in America's past has some influence on the position of uh, people of color today? Okay, I, I wanna say two things. So firstly, because I was listening to your uh, opening statement, obviously, and if I recall correctly, you had said that you thought that the the criminality explains something like I think you said sixty to eighty percent of the overrepresentation in, in arrest rates, whereas I was saying that it really explains close. something really close. like uh, it, it's sixty. Uh, it's sixty to eighty percent of the disparity can be explained by arrest rates. So really close, yeah. Whereas I was saying that their actual behavior just explains. The whole thing. So I do think there is a, a disagreement there. Um, but as for the history question, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a, a, a vague, I'm sure that there is some way in which the history of, of racism of the United States impacts uh, people today. But if you mean something like um, they were they were slaves and this instilled in them uh, a pattern of um, not being able to accumulate wealth and so they're poor today and then this is why they committing more crimes something like that uh, then no I tend to not believe in those sorts of things. How come? Do you think poor people commit uh, more or less crime than rich people with all other variables being equal? Pretty correct. Well, There's a pretty correct answer there. 
Yeah. So I mean, there's a two. You see, why there are two reasons. One is that seemingly poverty is not causal of crime, and secondly, the fact, the idea that your grandparents' level of wealth has a big effect on your current level of economic success also seems not true. So like two different. Well, well, one, the second one, that's objectively true, all right? There's about six generations of effect from your uh, from one generation's wealth. There's about six generations of wealth after that that are going to affect you. So, for example, if you're born uh, if you're born into the bottom, like, quartile or quintile of wealth, it's very, very hard to get out of it. It's very, uh, like, your upper mobility is much lower than someone born even in the second quintile uh, of wealth. So it is very hard. If you're born into poverty, you're more likely to stay there. And likewise, if you're born with uh, into wealthy parents, you're more likely to stay there, just for the simple fact that you're going to have more resources available to you if you're wealthy that you wouldn't have access to if you're poor. There's also the issue of poverty might not be the uh, explanatory on its own, but would you agree that rural poverty and urban poverty are two very different beasts? So I think what we should do here is is probably like just pick one of these things. Like let's let's do the – and then do the other, not pick one of these things and then not Uh, talk about Which one? Which one? We shouldn't keep – doing two things at a time oh uh, sure so, well my, my, my i kind of rejected the uh the, the notion that uh wealth is not generational i kind of rejected that right so let's let's do that first um so there are a few things so it's definitely true that people from poor families tend to end up poorer uh, but of course you can then ask why is that and there's several different lines of evidence which i think suggest that it's not going to be primarily causal um and this would be a few different ways. So firstly, you can look at something like family income. And while it's true that in general, people from families of higher incomes tend to themselves have higher incomes, this is only true in biological families, that in adoptive studies, uh, that correlation does not exist. In the second place, studies which try to look at what economists call random shocks to family wealth, where this is a change in family wealth that we know is not going to be, for instance, linked to, say, a culture or a genetic pattern in the family that lets them accumulate more wealth, uh, something like the mass destruction of property via a war. Studies that look at these kind of random shocks to wealth tend to find that the effects of wealth on generation on future generations' wealth, they don't last very long. So that if we're talking about the grandparents of someone, if, for instance, uh, this is a particular famous study from uh, looking at houses in Georgia, families in Georgia in the 1860s, asking the question, uh, what was the result of the when, when people had their wealth there? When you say Georgia, I'm sorry. War. I was going to say, I was say, which Georgia are you talking about? Okay, but the American Georgia, okay. Yeah, and then, so there's a study, for instance, looking at what happened to the families who had their wealth destroyed there. Uh, did that have an effect on the socioeconomic status of their descendants? The answer to that question was largely no. That's just one example. There are several different studies in this kind of literature. Yeah, but you would agree that like white families and black families after the Civil War were treated incredibly differently. Sure, but the question we're teasing apart right now is whether or not there's a causal effect of, for instance, your grandparents' wealth on your wealth. It's never going to be singularly causal. It's, it's always going to be a part of a multitude of factors. Poor people often live in, in worse areas with less opportunity. And obviously, an area that is full of poor people probably doesn't have the kind of like employment opportunities or a good education system that is going to make it more conducive to economic mobility. So it's not singularly causal, but there's a lot of correlative factors that tend to go with poverty. You're probably not going to be born into poverty, but in a great neighborhood with great schools, correct? Correct? Sure, but if you look at... So the the point is, though, that if we look at random changes in poverty, and we find that these random changes don't lead to changes in the socioeconomic status of the descendants, that means that not only is it 
true that poverty inherently in itself doesn't cause these things, but anything that's going to reliably go with poverty, such as any of the things you were mentioning. Okay, so based on the research that I've uh, seen that generally speaking, it's very hard to apply like any sort of general statistic to any one individual, that poverty uh, is pretty sticky. You're more, you're less likely to get out of poverty. And this also, like this also includes to, like, this is regardless of race, like poor, uh, if you're poor and white and born into rural Appalachia, you're more likely to stay poor. And obviously you're going to stay white, but you're more likely to stay poor than if you were born into a more wealthy family, even in the same relative geographical location, because you just have fewer opportunities. I, I don't see how it's a leap in logic to assume that if you go to a worse school and you have fewer economic opportunities to like get the kind of education or get the kind of health that you would need growing up, it's going to affect you in multiple different ways, some of which are just purely like uh, circumstantial, like you're not going to have access to the same like level of schooling or the same level of tutoring or the same level of like first jobs because you're not going to have the same connections, like your uncle's probably not going to be in a position where you can get you a good first job at like, uh, I don't know, his, his local business or something like that. And also it's going to affect you psychologically. It's a lot harder to look at like long-term planning when you grow up in poverty because that uh, drastically affects your psychology because there is no long-term planning. The only thing that matters is right now because that's the, that's going to be the difference between like you eating and not eating is what you do in the next like 10 minutes. So yeah, you're going to buy the more expensive options uh, because you can't buy the more expensive option in bulk. So it's definitely true that poverty is sticky, but my view is that that's primarily because genes are sticky. Uh, you look at twin studies or more modern SNP heritability, and the heritability of, for instance, income is quite significant. Uh, so that it runs think- in families is not surprising from any perspective. And, and I understand the narrative that you're, you're laying out, and I understand why that's a plausible hypothesis for sure. But if adoption data and random shock data, so, I mean, just an empirical question, right? How much do these things actually impact your income? And it seems to be that insofar as they are directly caused by poverty, the answer to that is close to none, at least if we're talking about a long-run effect that will last multiple generations. Okay, so I'm going to have to look up the data on that. I do not... I'm skeptical of the idea that an adoptive, that if a kid is adopted uh, very young, especially very young into a wealthy family, that they wouldn't exhibit at least similar degrees of the same like uh, benefits and or drawbacks that they would from just a purely generational variable of it. But I'm also like, I'm also kind of seeing where you're going so, with this. You're, you're, you're kind of putting forth a biological explanation for this, which is fine. You can do that. But then I would have to ask you, like, do you think that like biology and genealogy can like accurately place people into white and black? Or do you think that we're working backwards from white and black to use uh, genealogy and genes to make explanatory effects that might not be viable. Well, right now we're just talking about the effect of poverty on future income or wealth. And I don't think that directly ties into the genetics of race, but I mean, yeah, I think that race, you can predict race on genes. I mean, that's just a fact. Okay. So do you think that we can like take genealogy and then we can create a white race and a black race? That's so. What would it mean to quote create a white race? It would mean to say that there's a good justification for the separation of this one group of people based on their shared genes into a race that we would call white or black. We could could certainly have a justification now, whether or not it's a good justification, and and this Uh, may sound a little weird. so, so for some context, because this is something this has to do more with biology than it does race. So in the 1950s, there was a, a big debate in taxonomy, sometimes just called the subspecies debate. Uh, and the, con- 
because historically what happened in subspecies taxonomy, and this seems so far afield from why the police systemically racist, but whatever. I know. Well, 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 what I, uh, to skip ahead, but, just, just to skip ahead a little bit, like we started with white and black and a bunch of other different races. And then we worked to justify uh, you know, classifications into those races. All right. You started with race and then a lot of like genealogists and taxonomists post hoc uh, justified why people ought to be placed into those races. They were from the beginning, a political label to justify political power rather than a, uh, a subsection of biology springing forth out of nowhere with a null hypothesis, putting people using biology, using genealogy into these races. All right, white, black, uh, and whatever, like red, yellow, all, all those races were created first, and then we started to place people within them. All right, so I don't think... So, okay, go ahead. So yeah, so, so I was just going to say that in, in the 50s, since the 50s, it's been widely recognized in subspecies taxonomy that if we're going to do subspecies, that choosing the correct set of subspecies within a given species is somewhat arbitrary and is going to be up to what the taxonomist thinks is socially important. Uh, that's what I was going to say. So that there's a mirroring here with race and subspecies taxonomy. Well, of course, race like are not subspecies. Yeah, and where, where but, are the taxonomists getting those ideas? They're getting them from the political right, structures so, so the, and social structures at the time. So they're getting them from a, yeah, a variety of sources. But the, the point I was just making is that the fact that race is constructed in this way does not tell us whether or not there are significant biological differences. Now, I do want to also say, though, that I think the history of the formation of racial concepts is largely going to be based on people just noticing the clustering of geographical differences, at least as it seemed to them as they traveled around uh, the globe, sort of in that 1500s, To skip a few steps and bring it back to like racial disparities in policing, what benefit does this give us? Like, if you look at a black person, do you think that there's enough biological difference between black, supposed black and supposed white people to make a uh, an inference on their behavior? Do you think that that's a reasonable justification? If you see a black oh, person. Oh, I mean, sure. All right, so you're not arguing against, like, uh, systemically racist police officers or policing. You're justifying it. You're saying that since yeah, we, I mean, I, I said that in my in my opening statement that, that I might, depending on how you define it, I might just be defending systemic racism rather than denying it exists. If it's that if it's just objectively rational, right? If, if your race is being used, so something that maybe this will clear it up. I would be opposed to, for instance, saying I'm going to treat this black person differently because I don't like the fact that they're black. But if you say I'm going to treat this black person differently because given the set of imperfect information I have, his race is just objectively a valid heuristic for some outcome that I have legitimate interest in, then I don't think that that's objectionable. Okay, I definitely think that it's objectionable because I don't think a police officer or any sort of like a person in the criminal justice system is going to have like the biological uh, knowledge uh, to like justify like, no, I, I know the genealogy behind this person. This just attributing racial characteristics to an individual, treating that individual as representative of their broader group and making decisions based on top of it. I can't think of a more concrete example of something that is overtly racist than that. You're judging someone based on superficial characteristics. You do not know their genealogy. You're making very rough estimates, very rough estimates that would not like be, uh, wouldn't be viable in any sort of like genealogical sense. And you're trying, and you're altering your behavior to affect their life based on that. That's just objectively, explicitly racist. And that's not how well, this I country think that like, ought police to go often have information that makes it very clearly justifiable for them to be interested in someone's race. I mean, just the most obvious example of this is, for instance, the description of police suspects, right, which black people are highly disproportionately represented in. 
Yeah, do you think that there might be some sort of like in-group preference for, to be able to differentiate between your own in-group and a little bit of like a, an out-group um, bias? You're not going to be able to differentiate uh, between out-groups as much. Do you think that might be a case? Sure. All right. So do you think that, that maybe that's still kind of not fair that if you're born black, that you're going to be treated worse because you're born black just by default? Do you think that that's a, a good thing? Do you think that we ought to treat individuals based on like as representative of their general populations based on race? So there are, there are two things to say. So in the first place, we should say that, I should say that so far as we can tell, police sort of under pull over black people relative to their representation in those uh, suspect descriptions. But in the second place, there are two different questions about is it just for us to treat people a certain way and is it fair from their perspective, right? Because if it is just objectively true that so far as I can tell, one person has a 10% chance of something being true of them and another 15% chance. Do you think that's how we apply statistics? Do you think broad statistics representative of broad population groups, do you think that that applies to individuals? Like, so let's say that I, as a white person, I'm 50, uh, like that white people on average, 15% of white people do X. Do you think that that means that I, as a white person, am 15% likely to do X? Do you think that's how like we should apply statistics? If the only thing I know about you is that you're white, then that is what that would mean. So, so once again, you're, you're not denying systemic racism or you're not even like denying that racism exists. You're trying to say that it, we ought to do it, that it's justified. I'm trying to think of like every single like racist outcome or racist policy or racist institution or racist like presidency in the United States. They were all justified based on some sort of rationality. I don't think that's good enough. I don't, th I don't think that leads to favorable outcomes. I think that promotes more division in our society and perpetuates a lot of like worse outcomes for everyone involved. Like, for example, like if you otherwise black people to the extent that we have in the United States, you're more likely to like uh, oppose things like welfare and the social safety net, which hurts everybody. But people will justify it because it hurts the group that they think are less deserving of it. So we have this instance uh, instance of like this justified racial uh, animosity because black people don't deserve welfare as much as anyone else. You have that like it hurts everybody. So I don't think how your like worldview here that we can predictively like uh, judge someone's actions based on their race alone. I don't see how that like creates a better society for anyone involved. So in the real world, right, we don't use race alone because we often have lots of different information about someone. But you were asking me about the predictive validity of race in itself, and there is predictive validity of race in itself. In the context of the criminal justice system, though. I don't think this amounts to something particularly radical to suggest that it's not a great crime if the reason of us, if the reason why black people are overrepresented in bad out, bad outcomes of the criminal justice system uh, is because, for instance, you know, they just have higher rates of criminality. Like, I don't. Yeah, I didn't argue that either. There's two questions that is one, is that entirely explanatory? And the answer seems to be no. And two, well, what can we do to address that? When I would say well, the, the, answer, the answer to that is yes, that it, it does seem to be completely explanatory. So far as it's we, not, or at least we're not justified in saying it's not entirely no, it's explanatory. No, it's not. It's not incredibly explanatory. That's much harder to prove. Right, there do seem to be uh, evidence of bias. Like, so, for example, when a judge has discretion, they're more likely to be more harsh on black individuals and white individuals. That seems to be almost – it seems to be a reasonable inference because no judge is going to say because they're black. But it seems to be a reasonable influence uh, or inference that they are going to judge a black suspect as more dangerous, more hostile uh, than, a, uh, than a white counterpart of the exact same like status. Now, obviously, that's very broad, and it's not going to be you know, the only factor involved. But if it is a factor involved, it seems to be that you would justify 
justify it because the judges would be rational in assuming that black person would be more violent, which is just it's that's justifying racist policies. Where I was, whereas I would say like that's something that ought not to be taken into consideration. Not only should it not be taken into consideration, but it's worth like uh, like checking to see if this uh, this if this bias exists within that individual judge because that does not result in a fair uh, judicial system. Right. So when you talk about matching the defendants in these sorts of cases, what I would say is that most of the criminological literature doesn't sufficiently match them uh, and that the studies on sentencing that do sufficiently match them um, actually just show that there's not a racial difference in sentencing outcomes. Okay, I'm going to say that they do. But they show that, like, with all else being equal, there is still, again, it's not like the only factor uh, uh, involved whatsoever, but it, there does seem, when you control for everything else, there does seem to be still a racial disparity there. So I'll say, I guess, to, I'll get more specific in two ways. Um, so weirdly, there's not a lot of meta-analytic evidence on this. The best meta-analysis on this that I have found is from, like, 1999, I think. It's by this guy Pratt. Um, and that meta-analysis concluded that controlling for very obvious confounders reduced the uh, difference in sentencing to non-significance. And then in the second place, uh, if you look at the models that are being used and you filter out for the ones that are good in the sense of um, models that have that explain the vast majority of the variance in sentencing outcomes to begin with, with the set, set of independent variables are using in the model, that these almost all show that there's no racial difference in sentencing outcome. And that there's a huge number of statistically weak models in which uh, racial bias persists, but I think that's best explained by the statistical weakness as models. Okay, I'm not familiar with the exact statistical models that you're using or the exact studies that you're citing, but so there's a weakness of a, of a live debate, I suppose. Um, but again, one of my primary arguments is that there doesn't need to be any bias whatsoever. Now, I think there's good justification for exp uh, for saying that there is bias, uh, like individual bias, not because that uh, police officers are in there themselves like evil racists or the judge ju judges just hate black people. I think it is a matter of pattern recognition, but that's still, that's a rationalization, but it's not a justification. We Ought, we ought to treat individuals like individuals, and a judge does not uh, sentence black people. They treat they sentence individuals on a case by case basis. And I don't think that assuming that a black person is more likely to do X or Y or Z is a just outcome or a just way that we ought to co conduce our like uh, judicial system. But again, it, none of that bias needs to exist for the systemic racism to be in place. I don't see how it's possible that, uh, that seeing how we've had explicitly uh, racist laws in this country that separated people out, that segregated the population into these concentrated areas of poverty, that those areas of poverty would affect not only one's economic opportunities, but their psyche. Uh, I don't see how that wouldn't play a significant factor in racial disparities that we still see today. We had an enormously like uh, racist history that was never meaningful corrected by purposely keeping wealth out of the hands of people of color and never being and that was never corrected the closest thing we uh, like came to correcting was like we uh in theory we stopped enacting those racist actions but that doesn't mean that those racist actions weren't still perpetuated just because like a law says that you can't explicitly discriminate against black people well those same biases that made that discrimination palpable to the public consciousness those same biases within the public still uh existed and they still can exist to this day so there's a lot of ways that racism still perpetuates in the mind of other people not because they're evil but just because the linear force of culture uh like the cultural inertia and I think that's right, so way I mean, more this, explanatory. I think that's way more explanatory than biology. So it, it sounds like this just brings us back though to the intergenerational poverty thing, which 
we've already done it. it. It ended in the same place of just their studies can't read studies live. So unless there's another avenue of that you want to explore that isn't just the direct effect of the poverty. Well, it's not just poverty, although I do think I have a better justification for believing that, especially like the stickiness at the ends, that that is pretty uh, relevant in literature. If you're born very poor, you're likely to stay very poor just because you have fewer opportunities. I don't see how that would be controversial at all. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> there's also the... the uh, well, I mean, you do know why I think that that's... I mean, you, you do think, know you why. Think it's I, like, you think it's like biology and genes and stuff like that. Right, exactly. So, so, but anyway, go okay. ahead. So, and I, I think that's kind of bunk. I don't think there's gonna be an. I don't think there's like people. Well, yeah, we don't agree with each other. So. Yeah. Okay. I think I have better justification for my side, but of course that's why I believe what I do, and that's why you believe what you do. So, I also think that it's like being born into a lot of situations has affected the psyche. One uh, theory of criminology would state that someone, uh, especially a marginalized group who has like uh, been kept out of society, are going to create a culture that is more that is more likely to reject the rules of the dominant culture. So if you're if you are perpetually like discriminated against or kept out of avenues of society, you're more likely to reject the rules altogether. If you don't, if you think that society, like let's say if you're uh, black in the 1950s and 60s, let's say that you've been ex- experienced like the enormous like levels of discrimination that black people were subject to, why the hell would you like treat uh, society's laws as just if they have not been just to you? If the system has not been designed to benefit you, but it, rather to explicitly exclude you, wouldn't that make it more like that you're more likely to engage in like risk-taking behaviors or uh, behaviors that would be more that would be seen as criminal, but you might not uh, accept the morality of like why is smoking weed bad? Why do they say it's bad? I do not give a shit. I, these laws aren't were never were not designed for a system that uh, was ever uh, meant to help me. So why would I accept some of these dumb rules that I that have been uh, forced upon me? We see a lot of that in a lot of marginalized groups. A lot of marginalized groups, regardless of like genealogy, uh, do see higher rates of crime just because if you have been marginalized by society, you are less likely. Now, obviously, this is a case-by-case basis. I'm not saying that every single marginalized person hates society, but it does explain that at least a certain portion of the uh, uh, of the population are going to reject the rules of society simply because they are uh, they perceive society as marginalizing them as a rule. So I guess I would say three things. Um, one, I think that'd be really hard to demonstrate causally that that's true. Two, I, I doubt that it's very reliably true just because you can easily think of marginalized minorities for them that it's not just like, say, Asians in the early 20th century, or for that matter, certain European immigrant groups that if you look at their serious violent crime rates, they weren't especially high. Um, and then in the third place, I don't even think that black people are marginalized in contemporary American society. So maybe, I, though, though they think it is, so I mean, I guess there's that. They, they think, think they it are, is. rather. Uh, they, well, if they, they think they're they marginalized, well, but, even if, if they think they're marginalized, that that would be my point, right? There's no there's no way to objectively prove that a population is marginalized. It's all about perception. And also, like, do sure, you think the, like, go ahead. And I do think that their perception of being marginalized has certain psychological effects on them, but I don't think it explains their higher crime rates particularly. Okay, you think it? Do you think their higher crime rates come down to biology and like the right? Uh, there's not a whole lot of direct research on a the, the biological causes of, of crime in general, but b specifically with respect to racial differences. There's some suggestive data that biology plays a role, but I would more just say that biology. It's plausible that biology is a significant effect, and that the kinds of environmental variables that people normally point to, things like poverty, uh, 
lead exposure, single parent families, stuff like this. These are absolutely not significant contributors. Single parent families aren't aren't like a contributing factor. Like not one, a significant one now, with a racial gap. Now I'm not gonna okay. So, well, one lead absolutely does have an effect, but I but I kind of get what you mean. Like uh, like not a, a not a significant portion of the population was exposed to lead. Uh, not that you're not saying that like lead exposure is a is a null thing, right? Just that not enough people have been exposed to lead poisoning to make it a significant factor, right? Oh no, I actually think that the lead thing is a null. Thing. A null. I mean, it's, well, I know, it's also null, true. Okay, whatever. Well, uh, there are two different things that are both true. A, lead exposure rates are low, and the differences between races are small enough such that even if there is an effect of lead on crime, it's not going to explain much of the crime rate difference. And B, though I also think it is true that lead impacting crime is probably not a correct theory to begin with. It's probably well, – well, no one's going to say that it's like the explanatory factor. It's just one of the – Well, of course not, but I'm talking about does it have well, any causal I want I want to go back to like the, the single-parent households. You don't think that that would like – you don't think that that has an effect on people? In terms of criminality, I don't – it probably doesn't. And if it does, it's not very big. Okay, but that's that's true for like white and black families. Like if you're born into a single-parent uh, household, you're more likely to engage in criminal activity for a variety of reasons. One, just there's there's correlates. Like single-parent households probably have lower amounts of wealth just because now there's definitely only one source of income. Uh, it's going to be harder for that. It's going to be harder for that uh, parent to, be, to make enough income to support you and also spend enough time with you to like develop this proper like parent bond to set boundaries and morals and stuff like that. And uh, because a lot of like social safety nets have been gutted or they're not they're inadequate in the country, it's going to result in a lot more like uh, freedom in a bad way for kids to like go out and uh, engage in activities that may lead them to more criminal uh, like ideation in the future. I don't think that's a very viable like argument to have that single like being born to a single parent household has a negligible effect on criminality. I think that's that's a pretty big one. Sure, so I mean th- there are a few things. So uh definitely kids that come from single parent homes have a somewhat elevated risk of criminality, but again the question is causally speaking why uh, there's research that has found that, um, for instance, coming from a broken home doesn't predict uh, criminality once you control for the father's rate of criminality, the, the left, uh, which suggests to me that the effect is not directly causal. And there's also research Wait, do you think that those that are separate? When, Wait, do you think those are separate? Like a father's rate of criminality can directly explain why the family is in a broken home, right? So you're like, you're taking away, yeah, and, and you're like controlling well, let me for also factors that the, led to the same factor, right? Because uh, then, cause then so, you're like comparing like broken families in which like the father left for like good reasons and versus like f- broken families where the father left for bad reasons. Like that's a weird research, distinction to make. So the point would be that the father isn't there, but that it is his criminality, which seems to be the predictive factor in his child's criminality, which is consistent, obviously, with an indirect genetic causation. There's also data, though, I should say, showing that. Uh, children, when their parents are arrested and taken away and incarcerated, when that initially happens, there's a disruption to their behavior, but that their behavior in the long run actually improves because the parents who tend to be removed in that sort of way, which is a significant factor in explaining the single parent rate among African Americans and how it's risen since the 60s, uh, that those parents tend to be not very good parents to begin with. And too often, I think when we talk about the effect of single parent homes, we're assuming that if the parents were there, they would be decent parents. Which obvious, which well, of course is not yeah, true. 
Well, of course, like uh, it's not a, a one-to-one assumption. Like you can't make that assumption with every single case. But I think broadly, broadly speaking, it's better for the parents to be there than not. And one of the giant like reasons we had this giant spike in arrests of black uh, of black people uh, specifically was like the war on drugs. Like like it was an enormous increase. I, I believe in the '80s, like of these giant like uh, this giant spike in arrests of way 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 disproportionately like uh, people of color. And, like they were for like drug crimes. Like drug crimes like have been in have been a horrible like idea in terms of like uh like arresting people for drug offenses have like really really disrupted families they perpetuated cycles of both poverty and criminality and there doesn't seem to be any like reason for them to be like uh, the, the net benefit for society uh, seems to be like ve- very negative for a lot of these arrest records however one of the reasons that they gained such popularity is because they were seen to primarily target people of color if you look at like a lot of like policing decisions and uh, criminal justice decisions uh that have gained popular support in this country if they are perceived to hurt people of color more they have more uh popular support from a largely white electorate and so i think that it's not unreasonable to assume that because of that like otherization that white people have imposed upon people of color we support policies that hurt them more to keep them down to keep them from approaching these levels of like uh any whatever measure you want to use to keep them from like white measures of success and that seems to be like a something that has perpetuated itself via policy and the result of policies which have formed for, for further policies. That's what I mean by systemic racism. It's never just a group of police officers being implicitly racist. It's always like policies that uh, inform uh, results that inform policies to the point where like people today might be like post hoc racist. They might not hold any of that Jim Crow era racism, but they see the vast discrepancies. They uh, believe in the false notion that we live in a race blind society that is you know just to everyone within it. And so they uh, work backwards from that to say that, well, since black people and Hispanic people, which is weird to put Hispanic people into a single race, we see that discrepancy and think, oh, well, there just must be something wrong with them. And that doesn't seem to be a very like good way to approach things if we want society to be better. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we've constructed I mean, a few things. One, uh, the disproportionate level of incarceration among African-Americans is mostly not due to drug laws. Um, I don't support drug laws, but whatever. Uh, so I, I don't think it's that explanatory anyway. Uh, generally speaking, a lot of the laws that most disproportionately affect African-Americans are not things that we put in place to, to harm them. The things like laws against murder, things like this. Well, of, uh, course, and of course not. In like the, that would say that they and also, a lot of the things that today are talked about sometimes as prime examples of things that um, are laws that we put in place with malice against black people at the time, I was literally the opposite was true. So just to pick two examples. So for instance, when, um, and these don't exist anymore, but they existed for decades and left us talked a lot about them. Uh, the federal mandatory, minatory, uh, minimum mandatory guideline, sentencing guidelines, having to do with the fact that crack was punished a lot more heavily than cocaine and starting like the late nineties leftists started to complain about this as something that racists had done. But back in the eighties, as a matter of fact, this was something very strongly supported by sort of quote unquote African-American leaders and such of the time and in Congress because of the fact that they thought that, you know, the crack was destroying their communities in various ways. The same thing is true of that crime bill in the early nineties and the black caucus or whatever well of course it. like it would be like no one would argue that like black people aren't subject to the same like societal biases as everyone else right like, well you had said but well you had said that these laws were supported by uh, you white people yeah largely white people but also black people as well 
disproportionately white people in, in some cases. But the laws that I was talking about wasn't talking about like specific like the crack versus cocaine laws. I was talking about like welfare policies. Like welfare policies were broadly supported by white people until people of color were brought to the table. And because of that perception that it was going to go to someone who was less deserving, then they stopped supporting those policies. And because of that, a lot of black people did not get the same leg up as white people. And so a lot of people now live in areas of concentrated poverty, which is way more conducive to crime. If you are I, I can't. So can I just get a, a, a solid uh, answer on this? If you are born to an area of concentrated urban poverty with a high crime rate, do you think that you have the same likelihood of, of criminality as someone born out uh, in like a suburban uh, area of relative wealth? If all else is equal, if then, all else is equal, we have we have two. Then, yeah, roughly. Wait, you have the same. You have the same likelihood. Yeah, roughly. We have we have two twins. One's born into areas of concentrated urban poverty with high crime rate, and one's born into relative wealth. You think they had the relative same level of likelihood of beca- of engaging in criminality? Yeah. So okay. in general, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to that. Well, in general, like, of course, it is true that people born in those contexts do have higher crime rates. There are uh, you're going to say it's like biology. There are what are called sibling analysis studies, where what they do is they follow families over time that change out of those situations and see if these siblings born during those situations have higher crime rates than those born once they escape those situations. And what they find is that after accounting for what the researchers call these uh, unobserved family factors, that there is no causal effect of neighborhood disadvantage on criminality. And this is not this is something I just made up. It's just what researchers found. I know, but it's almost like self-selecting out of like families who make it out of those situations. Yeah, obviously they're going to be one of the, the lucky ones who make it out. So it's like survivorship bias. You're only looking at people who have made it out of, of like uh, bad situations and like comparing them. Well, no, it also looks at people who they get worse. The, the point is to look at variation in neighborhood disadvantage over time in families. Okay, I just think it's a ridiculous concept. Like, if you have more opportunities to commit crime with all else being equal, you're just as likely to commit crime as someone who is like not. I mean, I, I just think like there's so many more in the era of so much. I mean, we should be we should be fairly distrustful. I think even of the social science itself, given things like the replication crisis that have occurred, we we should not not be basing our political views on on intuitively plausible narratives. I don't think that that aren't heavily supported by causal data. Okay, but I but I, I kind of agree with you. There is a replication crisis, especially in the social sciences. I think the answer to that is more funding. Like it, it's hard to fund studies that just do the same thing again. I'll agree with you that that's an enormous problem in academia. But I also think that some intuition can be a good like uh, avenue towards looking at different things. And it seems to be like I, I would have to like do. I sp- think that's a very dangerous way to end up being used by systems, right? Because our intuitions are so shaped by Which what is- authorities tell us, and you're born into a society. They shape your intuitions in very ways and if you end up course, you know an empirical world beyond those intuitions they can you know what i'll take i'll take the l on that one of my one of my arguments is that a lot of people intuit that we are in a post-racial society that no one's racist anymore and therefore like any discrepancies must be the result of something other than his uh, systemic or historic or uh, implicit racism and so yeah I'll, I'll i'll take the l on that specific point that yeah intuition ought not to be the only thing that uh, like influences policy decisions but i think there's enough research especially when it comes to like uh like systemic racism when it comes to like the disparities not being solely the result of behavior alone. I think there's enough to say that they, at least there's something that is influencing like the bias of like the people at all levels of the criminal justice system. But again, that bias is not the determining factor of whether or not a system is systemically racist. It is the historical factors of racism, of explicitly racist laws that inform
inform like uh, where people are now. I do, I think it's a ridiculous assertion to say that like two people of like the equivalent genetics, like one born into a wealthy family in the suburbs, one born into like concentrated poverty uh, with a, in a high crime rate area. I think it's very very unlikely that those that uh, that those be, two people will have the same propensity for crime. Genealogy can't account for all of that. People are incredibly adaptable. In fact, the only the strongest like uh, biological fact of humanity is that we are adaptable. We adapt to our environments. And so like we are going to make decisions both uh, short-term and long-term based on the environment around us. That is going to be way more explanatory of actions. If you put a gene into uh, two different environments, it is going to express itself much differently because genes are inert molecules. They are only reactive. They must have an environment in order to uh, perpetuate any sort of action. So no, I, I think that's is I know that intuition is not the best way to go forwards on these things, but that seems so wrong on its face that I would need to see an incredible amount of like empirical data supporting that. That like uh, people born into like areas of concentrated poverty uh, have the same level of criminality when you control for like every other single factor. Sure. Although obviously, I mean, I could link you something, but it'd be like a live. Uh, I mean, we can talk. I, we didn't, I didn't really plan on talking about this, but we could talk directly, I guess, about sort of the intersection between genetics, race, and crime, um, since we seem to be did not prepare, uh, did not do most of my research regarding like genetics and crime. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I haven't. I've I've tried to not directly talk about. It, just you seem to keep referencing. It seems to not be very explanatory for differences. The, my main argument regarding right, that, saying and I know, that makes well, me well, want no, to talk about it. <laughs> well, no, well, no well, my primary argument, and I know this is true, is that you would not, if you went from the bottom up, if you had no knowledge of white, black, Asian, what have you, you would not get the same racial categorizations that we use today from solely genetic data. I know that the, I know for a fact that people started with white, black, or red, or what have you, and then they worked backwards to justify why people ought to be grouped into those different racial categorizations. I know that. Uh, uh, to be true, and so then that's well, all. The, I mean, the the first, I think his name is. I want to say his name is Bernier, this explorer who I want to say it's in the 16th century, who we got the first sort of global modern racial taxonomy from. As far as I recall, for him, it was just. I mean, he was one of the first people to have traveled around all the you know major continents of the time, and then he just thought that oh, I mean, it was based on con you know continental ancestry, and just these people from these different places tend to look different. I don't think it's that. Or you can look at early sort of more scientific theories, like a, like a Blumenbach or something like this, and there's no uh, – I don't know. It, it seems fairly consistent with the, the modern view. Do you think that it would be race. useful and explanatory to use those concepts of race that we have today, which would be black and white and, and you know Hispanic and Asian? Do you think that those are useful categorizations that can reliably predict criminality or re reliably predict anything? They're so broad. Oh, yeah. I mean like for instance – uh, the percentage, white, the percentage so you, of black in an area is more predictive of its crime rate than is things like its unemployment rate, its poverty rate, its single motherhood rate, et cetera. Okay. Why do you think that is? You're going to say it's biology, right? Yeah. I mean, you know why I think that. <laughs> uh, I know why it's, why it's predictive, but also like all those things. But you asked me factors. if you could use that to predict. I mean, I was just answering your question. Could you use that to predict criminality? And the answer to that is yes. Do you think you can use it to predict the criminality of an individual person? As in, would you think that it is justified for a police officer or any other member of the criminal justice system to use race as a predictive factor in an individual, whether or not they should be like uh, get a certain crime sentence or whether they should be perceived as dangerous? Well, like I said before, in, in the case of sentencing, I don't think that's happening, but it is just objectively but true you would justify that, that at the individual level, there is predictive validity of race. Now, obviously, it except is not it, entirely that's predictive. obviously ridiculous. Well, so that's instance, obviously it might decrease like your rate of error by twenty percent. No, you're literally saying that you ought 
but you're not so you've kind of conceded the point that we ought to be racist that that should be uh, something that we do we should insofar if by racism you mean using race as a heuristic when race objectively predicts a criterion of interest which is different than just hating someone due to their race well hold on no that's that's still racism it by any other name you can call it racism i I mean i'm fine with that i just want to also be clear about what we're talking about yeah but also you're saying that you can use it to predict an individual's behavior which is what a member of the criminal justice system does when they are interacting with somebody and that is i think that's ridiculous no obviously you can't use that like that would be, and well, no, would I mean, be uh, if race is that would be antithetical this. to like every single American value that we have. In fact, a lot of people like that perpetuate racist systems have to pretend that they don't exist in order to like still be proud as an American. They have to pretend that those racial disparities don't exist. You're kind of like endorsing this notion that no, we should treat people treat people different. No, I mean, race. if I'm so, for instance, if I'm predicting what you're going to act like ten minutes from now, I'm going to use a a bunch of things, all of which are imperfect predictors. The, at this point, the best of which is your past behavior maybe your reputation, reputation of people like you online, because I actually didn't know particularly uh, much about you specifically. Uh, in another situation, it might be something about how you look. This is just how uh, prediction works. It's based on variables, all of which are imperfect predictors. That we all of which are incredibly imperfect and subject to like generational biases, right? Like the, our notion of like what white people are like and what black people are like did not come, uh, spring forth out of the void with each individual, right? We're influenced sure, by those societal and this aspects. is part of the reason why I keep having the caveat, as long as it's objectively true, that it is linked to the criterion of interest. If it's an incorrect stereotype, then of course that should not be used. That's not rationally justifiable. Wait, it's not, wait, a stereotype, there's usually some sort of like a broad societal like statistic that would like justify uh, a racial stereotype. They don't spring forth out of nowhere. But the, the point of like why we ought not to use stereotypes is because they're very, have very, very low predictive uh, capabilities for an individual person. That's the entire point of rejecting stereotypes. So and what, you're, like, what you're saying is to use a predictor that, for instance, explains 10% of the variance in something is to use it as if it explains 10% of the variance, not zero and not 100. I mean, there's just an objectively rational – it's not an opinion. It's just an objectively rational way to treat such a predictor, and it's not as if it has no predictive validity at all. Well, what you're, do you so think that we – definitely all- interesting, and I'll give okay. you a chance to respond, Justin, but I do, after that, want to kind of return more to the topic that we uh, talked about earlier. <laughs> okay, so do you think that we ought – so a question will probably just carry it on. I hate to a question. God. Okay, cool. I, I'll just, I'll just say that. No, I think this notion that we should use race as a factor in sentencing is ridiculous on its face. It's not going to happen. Both of us know it's not going to happen. Everyone in the audience knows it's not going to happen unless we take a very dark turn in society. I think that they, they're, yeah, so there are a lot of like uh, policies that we can use uh, to reduce racial disparities and like pretending that, that like there's a biological component to race that would like that would justify why criminals are the way that they are based on race. One, there's no like race I mean, is not a is a socially constructed might be thing. A good chance, pretty quick here. All right, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let him respond to that. I was going to join on some more. I would just reemphasize that um, we're talking right now about a theoretical justification, but in the case of sentencing, I just think it's factually true that people that act the same way, like the race is not used in this way. So, but you think it ought to be used? Any last? There are situations where it could be justified, yeah. But we're t- but in terms of what's actually happening, it's not. Well, it is being used. Well, anyway, let's, let's so if we yeah, do actually return. Yeah. Any particular issues you guys want to bring up before we go into Q&A shortly? I'm good to Q&A unless he wants to address something. Um, 
Uh, I, I guess we could, yeah, we could move to the, uh, the Q&A. You got it. And our guests are linked in the description, folks. Want to let you know that as we jump into the Q&A, Coding Jesus says, Jangles, if we pay people to not commit crime through welfare or resource allocation, are we not being extorted by a group of criminals? No, I think that if you want to reduce crime in the United States, you ought to enact policies that have been proven to like reduce it without destroying the very communities that are, that are the victims of it. So it's not just that uh, uh, like people of color commit more crime, they're also the victims of more crime. So enacting policies that are just like, like broken windows policing and stop and frisk, one, stop and frisk doesn't meaningfully reduce crime in any significant capacity, especially when you compare it to like the vast level of like racial uh, and animosity that it creates. Broken windows policing is another example that like, yeah, it, produce, it reduces crime a little bit, but it also produces way harsher outcomes for the people that live in that community than we get benefits from reducing that crime rate. So no, I don't think, I think that like enacting policies that give people more more opportunities to pursue other options, like uh, uh, to give them more opportunities to have that social and economic mobility. No, you're not being extorted by people uh, who commit more crime. You're trying to actually address the root cause of it. It's like saying like uh, your uh, drug addicts are extorting you for rehab. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate your question. Tristan Jones says, Jangles, do poor people commit more crime because they are poor or are they poor because they choose crime over productive endeavors? Well, it's hard. for a causal factor, you're probably going to be poor before you commit crime, although they can certainly perpetuate themselves. So uh, being poor is not the same across the country. There's a difference between urban poverty and rural poverty. If for the sole reason that rural poverty, like where are you going to commit your crimes? Right? The nearest person is 20 miles away. So there are it's hard to be causal, but being born poor is more causal in predicting criminality than the other way around. Although certainly if you are a criminal, if you're a criminal and you have a, uh, some, uh, a criminal offense on your record, you're fucked. We've basically guaranteed that you are not going to, you're going to have a far less likelihood of getting a, uh, a viable job. You're, and you're more likely to be to uh, like just get right back into the system because what are your other options? So I think those are worth addressing in criminal justice reform, like trying to make it so that like uh, felons and other like criminals have more opportunity to pursue a life outside of crime you got it and coding jesus also says jangles why do you hide behind single parents while supporting policies that encourage fatherless homes like when the state replaces father via welfare I don't hide behind that at all. One, I think that two parents in the home are generally pretty good. Now, we can't uh, automatically assume that like uh, a single parent, like an unmarried parent has only one parent in the household. There are a little, there is a little bit of a, a discrepancy there. Like we, you can't have two parents in a household without both of them being married. But also I feel uh, like welfare uh, does improve people's lives. You can't afford basic necessities, which reduces stress, uh, which also makes it uh, so that you have more opportunities to uh, to pursue other like pursuits to be redundant it, it costs a lot of money to be poor and so welfare policies that can help lift people out of that poverty it's not just you're giving them the opportunity to lift themselves further out of poverty if you have no money you don't have opportunities to get money so no i don't think this promotes fatherlessness it promotes mobility you got it and thanks very much for your question mark reed says sean do you have any data to support a causal link between race and criminality or do you only have correlation and are therefore making baseless claims sure so it, it's like i kind of talked about before if you're asking about a genetic link that the research on the genetic well through twin studies we know that genetics explains a significant amount of the variation in criminality the research specifically on the link between genetics 
crime and race is somewhat weak. Um, what we know for sure is that a lot of the environmental variables that are often cited do not explain much of the variance and that there's no reason. And in fact, since individual variation within populations is significantly due to genes, we should assume that that would naturally be also true across groups. I mean, there is some direct research though that we could talk about. So the thing most often talked about, for instance, is that, uh, oh, there's there's a gene, um, the MAOA gene, the monoamine oxidase A gene, which uh, breaks down a certain class of neurotransmitters in the brain. If you have a low repeat version of it, it tends to make you seemingly more impulsive, more violent. This has been written about in dec for decades in the criminological literature. Those repeat, low repeat variants are much more common among African-Americans than white Americans, but that's just one example. But but again, I don't want to place too much emphasis on this because I don't think we have a super good understanding on the exact genetic architecture of criminality to begin with. You got it in. Cillian Holland says poverty is genetic now. What kind of eugenic nonsense is this? Oh, that's the consensus in behavioral genetics. I mean, I'm sorry if no one told you, but I don't believe is. that for a second. Sorry, I'm not going to take your word for that. Like there's a poverty gene. Yeah, so, so two things. Um, firstly, I would say that there's, there have been dozens of studies uh, showing the heritability in traits like this. And the second place, in fact, I mean, it's literally called the first law of behavioral genetics that any trait which significantly varies within a population is going to be significantly heritable. And that's what I was thinking of when I called it just the consensus in behavioral genetics. It's, and, and that, in fact, that law was pinned by Eric Turkheimer, who's a very left-wing behavioral geneticist of that. But yeah. This one coming in from, do appreciate your question, Ryan... <laughs> B says, Sean, thoughts on the quote-unquote ghost ancestors study showing African-American people having up to 19% of DNA throughout ancient history. Let's see. It's hard to make sense of that one. Ryan B, that one's a little bit confusing for me. But do have another one, this one coming in from. Forward Tribe says, if the system is composed uh, by individuals of every race, then how can the system be racist, Jangles? Because it doesn't require any implicit bias whatsoever on the part of the individual actors. I'd, people assume that like, if a, a black person born into a, uh, a racist system cannot be biased against black people, when that's absolutely not the case. Right? I'm not sure Sean would agree that plenty of white people are biased against white people. So it's not like it's not like being so true. I know it's sad, yeah, so it's not so. Therefore, it'd be a pretty weak argument to say that black people can also justify uh, discrimination based on, you know, uh, based on race. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to say, like, system justification theory has routinely pointed out that there are certain members of every single group that will justify discrimination against them because there's a palliative effect. It makes them feel better if they think that they have a better, uh, like, a shot at society because there is no bias. It makes them kind of feel better. And so to do that, they'll ignore discrimination when it happens. It happens to LGBT people. It happens to black people. It happens to, like, almost any group of people that you could think of that's been studied. If they are a marginalized group, they will ignore situations of discrimination when it's very obviously happening because it makes them feel better about, like, being themselves. Gotcha. Well, um, are we allowed, I don't know if we're supposed to you can, can I like, comment on the question. Especially because we've run out of questions, so go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I was going to say that um, in psychology, there's a kind of standardized way of, of measuring uh, behavioral discrimination, which is separate from implicit discrimination, which has to do with you bring people in a room, you describe for them a situation, and you find out how they would 
treat a person in a given situation. Uh, you do that with one sample, the person's white. You do that with another sample, the person is black. Uh, they're otherwise, you know, the exact same at a level that you could never get in any real world scenario. And there have been meta-analyses of this sort of discrimination literature. And what it shows is that on average, white Americans don't have a net bias. On average, African-Americans do have a significant in-group bias. Uh, you can see the same thing if you just ask people to rate like how warmly they feel about different racial groups, including their own and such. And the group that stands out is white liberals having a bias against their own group. So that while it's certainly true that there are black individuals that are going to have a bias against their own group. Uh, this is much more typical of the white population than any other population. And our default assumption looking at any group of black people should always be that this is not true until we have quite strong evidence showing that it is in their case. So regarding that first point, no, I have like there's significant evidence pointing to the exact opposite. Uh, scenario. So like there's a one study done on police officers where even though they were less likely to uh, use like lethal force against like training scenarios when the uh, when the suspect was black than the general population, they were still quicker to identify armed black suspects and they were armed white suspects and they were quicker to like uh, turn away from armed uh, from unarmed white suspects and they were unarmed black suspects that might now when we talk about like uh, broad trends that might not mean anything that might not have the statistical power to like meaningfully translate into real world actions, but uh, cops will tell you that in those split second decisions, it might factor into it. We also have experimental studies showing that like the darker a subject's skin is in either the description or like in like a digitally like darkened image, juries like so mock juries are more likely to treat the uh, darker su suspect with less uh, uh, less favorability, with less uh, generosity uh, than a, a lighter skinned counterpart. Showing that like with everything else being equal, because this is an experiment, it's one of the few places we can like. Definitely, uh, uh, you know, parse out one variable. The population as a whole is more likely to be uh, to treat darker skinned applicants worse because they're going to associate more negative traits with them. So there have been a because this research has been going on for decades. There's been a ton of, of studies showing all sorts of things. Um, so what I would point to importantly is firstly um, what I. I was referencing before, I think the author Ziegrout's meta-analysis of this stuff in general, which I, meta-analysis you know, always takes precedent over any kind of single study. In the case of mock jurors, there have also been meta-analyses, um, and they find a very slight bias in the case of white mock jurors that is not practically significant, and in the case of African-Americans, a very large bias, which is very practically significant. And I think these meta-analytic results are to be preferred over single studies from social psychology, which tends to be fairly unreliable to begin with as a discipline. So a big problem is that like there's all these like small variables that add up like no like there's the the like uh, so there are so I'm looking at a mock uh, like a mock jury meta analysis right here let's see uh, it is the uh, Mitchell Hall Pfeiffer I don't know if that means anything to you but this was uh, completed in 2005 and they said that there was a small but still significant impact on like racial bias in their jury selection that doesn't have to be uh, the only explanatory factor that would point to systemic racism but all these small things that never explain like the majority of the discrepancy all of these small things still add up to something that is like you know a little bit here a little bit there a little bit there and I don't think that like as an American we should like tolerate any sort of like racial disparity that is the result of racial bias in our systems that includes like even post hoc justifications for like well black people commit more crime therefore we should judge black people as more likely to commit crime i don't think that like flies uh with like our american ethos or the policy decisions that we should make going forward so i mean there, there are two things i would say firstly i think this just is the measure of of, of bias and so there aren't a whole other bunch of other things we can add I, i'm not sure i can try to communicate this to the the audience that is not um particularly used to statistics in that Mitchell et al. meta-analysis, the, the mean effect size 
for African-Americans was 0.43, which is by any standard quite practically significant. For white Americans, it was 0.028 in terms of verdict decisions. That you could you could never that is something that you could never discern by the naked eye. It's, it explains far less than 1% of the variance in the outcome. Uh, same thing is true for looking at an even bigger difference in terms of the bias in sentence length where the African-American effect size is 0.73 in the case of white Americans, uh, still not even 0.1. Um, th- this is, uh, the effect found in that meta-analysis is so small, uh, you, could, you could add it 10 times and you still would hardly have anything. This question coming in, this one's for you, Sean. Click. Oh, okay. So they say, <clears throat> well, they lost it. One. Oh, they say Sean is the kind of guy that says, quote, I'm not racist because even though you're inferior to me and I don't want you to be around me, I don't hate you. Is this true, Sean? Is there any way in which you would uh, say that your position is in jeopardy of what they're uh, accusing you of? Sure. I mean, especially if the I don't want to be around you thing. I don't know what they're getting at there. I'm not a white nationalist. I'm fine with uh, non-white people being in the in the country and then the community that, that I live in and that sort of thing. Whether or not someone's inferior. I mean, most people are not criminals. We're just talking about criminality here. And if someone is a criminal, that doesn't singularly make them inferior or superior to another person. Um there are people who I think are worse than me and better than me of every race. Now, I'm not going to try to dishonestly dodge this and say that I think that that's equally frequent in every race. I don't think it is, but it's not a monolithic thing. And there are uh, there, there are great black people and bad black people, great white people and bad white people. It just differs in the proportions. If you want to think that that makes me a racist, that then then fine. But it's not racist in a way that I find morally problematic. And there is a version of racism I find morally problematic, which is irrationally hating someone on the basis of their ancestry. You got it. This one coming in from Troll Nerd says, Sean, you keep saying, quote, the data shows dot, 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 but we have no way to verify your claim. Why should anyone take your word for it? I'll actually defend that a little bit. No one is going to be able to bring up every single study or data point that they have during a live discussion. So uh, if, even if you're using it to attack Sean, like that would uh, equally apply to me. So unless you specifically state like the authors of a study and even better, like the title of the study, or if we have like our like sources like listed out beforehand, that's just not a fair accusation to level at either of us. So, hey, look at that. All right. That's certainly true. I, I would also say that... Um, Anyone who wants can go to my blog, ideasanddata.wordpress.com. I have uh, been writing about this sort of stuff for many years. There's, uh, most of the citations I've named are uh, in my writing there that you can go read for yourself. I'm currently working on revising some of the crime stuff, so a few of the things I've cited here won't be there, but they will be soon. If you really want to check my sources, you can uh, go there, and it'll either already be there or will be there soon. You got it. want to say thanks, everybody. Do appreciate all of your questions and want to let you know we are thrilled to have many more juicy debates like this one let me know if you happen to have any other questions and otherwise we're going to wrap up our guests are linked in the description but want to say thanks so much sean and jangles and by the way folks our guests are also linked in the description at the podcast as we do have a podcast as well and so do want to encourage you to check that out and so Thank you very much, gentlemen, Sean and Justin. It has been a great time. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me as well. And thanks for being willing to do the debate. Obviously, a lot of people aren't, so I appreciate that also. 100%. Well, thank you guys. And with that, 
We will be back in just a moment, namely Andy and myself, my co-moderator there that you see in the bottom right screen there. We'll be back in just a moment, letting you know about upcoming debates that we're excited about. So stick around. We'll be back in just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, just loading up the screen as we are excited to excited to share with you folks. I am going to also introduce my dearest friend, Andrew, who we're excited to have here. It's going to be a good time as we are going to share with you just some of the upcoming stuff for Modern Day Debate. But I also want to introduce you to Andrew and want to say thanks, Andrew, for co-moderating. But I do want to say thanks, folks, for being with us. Do want to say hello to you there in the chat as you really do appreciate you being with us. And so... One sec. Extra frosting, pancake. I saw you were disappointed, and I am very sorry for not saying hello to you in the live chat, and so I am sincerely sorry for that. It was nothing personal. It's oftentimes that in the live chat, as a general rule, I'm greeting new people, and so I understand where you're coming from, and that's why I do apologize as I agree. I should have said hi to you, and I'm sorry about that, and so I do hope you have a great rest of your night, regardless of... uh, what your decision is but want to say we are thrilled to have you here folks sergio miguel i see there in the old live chat as well as brian let me know if it's pronounced nagayan nugian let me know but john edwards glad you were with us as well as bubblegum gun and retink retink thanks for being with us glad you are with us as well as five four three two one truth and thanks for becoming a member or renewing your membership, Surgeon General says, hope everyone had a great weekend. Thanks for coming. Appreciate that. Thanks so much, Surgeon General. Seriously, that really does mean a lot. And Grigory Asayan, thanks for being with us, as well as Chuck Pike and Contrary Marge. Marge, thanks for being with us, as well as Furry S and Dright Life. And Avoid, 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 good to see you, John Edwards. Glad you are with us. And Sadie, good to see you. Thanks for coming by. Hope you're doing well, as well as Zed Dez and L. Jim. But do want to introduce you, my dear friends. Andy is the name of my co-moderator for tonight. And Andy, you guys don't know, but Andy's actually been a part of the modern day debate community. He's watched many debates, but he's never spoken up in the chat. And also, though, on an even deeper level, Andy's actually been involved in modern day debate via being a tech guy in terms of helping me learn some of the tech stuff, but also in terms of some of the epic topics that we've hosted. Andy's been a person that I've been bouncing ideas with. And like I said, he's been in the live chat with you many a times while you've been watching live. He's been there watching live with you, but he's just an introverted fellow. And so he's oftentimes not saying hello. But Andy, want to give you a chance to say hello. Thanks so much for your being with us and supporting Modern Day Debate as you have. Hello. Oh, hello. Hi. Uh, it's great to meet everyone. Um, yeah. Pretty introverted and uh, just behind the scenes uh, helping James out with some stuff. And I think this month in particular, James is real busy with school. So uh, that's why I'm here uh, doing some extra work here to uh, to help him out a little bit during these times where he's very busy. 
It has so, been busy. Glad to meet everyone. Thank you, Andy. And I totally appreciate Andy and Bob and Brooke and just so many people that have been so helpful with the channel in terms of supporting it, especially while I've been basically getting ground into the ground. It's been a just crazy month, folks. I do want to say that we appreciate you being patient as we haven't had as many debates as we usually do. We know it's down to like two or three a week. Some weeks it's only one. And so we are we are just in a temporary tight spot where my time is super restricted as I have my comprehensive exam in less than a month. So it's going to be over soon. That's good. And so I am excited about that. But want to say hello to more of you in chat. Tony Swan, thanks for being with us, as well as Freaky Friday and Brandocious. Thanks for coming by. Good to see you. Let Tornado says, bait up. And Mark Reed, good to see you. Ariel Suarez, glad you're here. Hyrofant, thanks for coming by, as well as Rum Runner, good to see you again. And Sideshow Nav, thanks for coming by. Pumped that you are with us. And then Frank says, I didn't get groated. You mean greeted? We are pumped to have you here, Frank. And so we, as I mentioned in the live chat, you guys, I, I don't even know. I always wonder too. Hey, what, I don't know what you think, Andy. Like, I always, I'm like, do people, I hope they don't think it's weird that I'm saying hi. I, I used to even like search out, like I would type in, you know, cause you can do in the live chat, you can put like, you know, at, you know, put, put the at symbol and then you, you just type two, two letters and you'll see like whoever's there who has that, those first two letters in their name. And I used to like do that to like see who's in chat, who hasn't spoken up to greet them too. But then I actually heard from someone, they're like, no, no, that's creepy. Don't do that. So I don't do it anymore. Now I only greet people that are like in the chat that are speaking in the chat. But I, I anyway, Andy, is this creepy? Was it creepy that I did that? It wasn't I honestly didn't know you could see people who weren't talking. Oh yeah. I mean, let, so and let me just- Oh, just participants. If you just go to manage participants or something, I don't think it. No, it, well, it works if if you're watching via desktop, you can type in like at, oh. and then you know I could put like let me see if I can find somebody that if I put oh stuff will just come up. Yeah, okay, so I, I see. Yeah, I just put like R E, and then Rembrandt pops up, and I already knew Rembrandt was there, but it, it'll pop up even if a person hasn't spoken up in chat. You can I actually see. Search, but it doesn't work via phone, but. Long story short, I, I do want to say, folks, uh, we always try to greet new people just to especially make them feel welcome if they're new. And so, but I do also want to greet people who have been here for a long time as well, members and moderators. And so, if I've ever not greeted you, I, I am, I apologize for that. It's just that we're, like I said, oftentimes we're excited to have new people here. And so, Big Sky 789, thanks for coming by. Good to see you. Essay, the dolphin, am I saying it right? Let me know. Oliver Catwell, good to see you. This is hi, James. More good vibes. Thanks, Oliver Catwell. Seriously, that means a lot. And then John Edwards, as we are Modern Day Debates. There's no doubt about that, John Edwards. You guys make this channel epic, and I'm very serious. I'm not kidding you. This channel really, like, it is a truly community kind of, like, own channel in the sense that you guys, I, I'm just thankful that oftentimes people come to us and they're like, hey, we already found, you know, I already found an opponent to debate. Do you want to host us? And they're like, sure, like, thanks for doing that. Like, that's awesome that they've already set it up. That's one example. But even if you hit like on this video right now, that helps the channel. If you, if you share a video, for example, that helps the channel. And we really do appreciate the mods, for example, who've done a great job and where, hey, I know a lot of people are like, oh, screw YouTube's terms of service. And I sympathize. There's a part of me that is, you could say, anti-authority, you know, in the sense that, it, you know, just like, I think there's a, an anti-authority part to all of us to a degree. 
it comes in different degrees, but the point is this. We still abide by YouTube's terms of service because YouTube's helped us grow a lot. I mean, some of our, we have one video, one of our videos has had 4 million impressions. Just one video has had 4 million times where YouTube has put it in somebody's recommended video list. I mean, YouTube has helped us grow immensely. And so that's why we're like, hey, we're going to follow the terms of service. And we are excited about the future, though. We do want to let you know we do have some debates that are exclusively on podcast, especially if they seem to perhaps violate terms of service. That's something that we usually do. And then Chuck Pike, good to see you there in the old chat, as well as Sean Z Bonanzi. Thanks for coming by, as well as Ego Brain and Plummy 005. Glad you made it. Says modern day debates. Great moderating to both as always. Suggestion you think it would be better for both debaters to share their studies with each other before the debate might make it smoother. I'm totally open to that. I appreciate you saying that. And I actually think that's a good idea, especially for the more technical debaters. That's a great idea. So I appreciate you saying that. And then Frank says, I've got my shirt off. Thanks, Frank. There's nothing, there's nothing more charming than that. But Iron Horse, let's see. Says, you asked me to debate about gravity. You owe me, man. Yes, it is true that after you mentioned you'd be interested in that topic, I did reach out to you in the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I did eventually reach out to you via email to see if you wanted to debate Jocko on that. I, uh, I hope you've talked to Amy, by the way, just as a side note. Jason Miller, good to see you. Says, comply like a sheep. Thank you for that support, Jason. <laughs> and then this one coming in from 1888, I'm telling. Let's see. Says, how H-O-M-O-S-E-X-E-U-A-L is it that doesn't work on the phone, James? Is it that 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 doesn't work on the phone, James? I don't get... Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying like... So... We do want to, as that's why you got timed out. We do have to follow the YouTube terms of service is that you've learned it firsthand. And let's see. Iron Horse jumping on the old monkey pile. Iron Horse, I really do hope that you uh, do reach out to Amy and make amends. And then uh, let's see. Brian Najuyan says, I think modern day debate is a... I think, see. I think it's win, isn't it? Maybe. Huh? Win, I think. For who? Oh, sorry. I thought you were asking about that name. Never mind. Oh. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> sorry. Brian Wynn. Like Scotty Wynn. Oh, okay. Thank the you. The poker player. Yeah. And but yes, you want to say wanna say thank you so much. Two hats for being with us. Thanks, Andy, for letting me know what that means. Andy keeps me up to date on the cool terms, my dear friends. But yeah, for real. I, I do want to introduce you to Andy because he will be on more often. He's been helping. He's been trying to really jump in and like take because uh, uh, he's he's got more. He's got, he's got a, a good amount of experience with YouTube. Uh, frankly, I, I think more than me. But Andy is uh, helping out as I am, especially as I'm trying to catch up on life with this comps exam. And so I, I can assure you, though, not only has Andy been a part of the community and oftentimes in the live chat with you and in the introverted fellow. So like I said, not, not speaking up in live chat, but also Andy's like one of my most trusted friends of all time for real. The no joke. Like I, I can tell you folks out of all, I've got to give you credit, Andy, this is going to be sentimental for everybody to see this. <laughs> and I know this puts you on the spot. I'm sorry, but I have to be honest. Andy really is. You really are one of the most loyal friends I've ever had, and you've just always been so easygoing, and, and I just am so thankful that you've never held a grudge either.
because I can be quite annoying, but you've always been so gracious. So, but we have a super chat coming in from Cillian Holland says, since you've run out of questions, Sean, can you supply one study that shows evidence for the poverty gene? I said, I, let's see. I am so sorry that I, I, Sean, I, they must be watching on, you know, when you, you know, how you can like, while you're watching a live stream, you can like pull back the time meter. So they must be behind. They must be 20 minutes like 20 minutes 20 minutes backwards into the stream in terms of where they're listening right now so if you hear this Cillian, mm. i'm so sorry that uh i got your super chat too late because uh the debate's already wrapped up but let's see conservative non-believer says hello all thanks for coming by and then alien says will you host a debate in parentheses which animal is better for domestic use cow or goat oh that's an interesting question it depends it honestly really does depend it frankly, because that topic is a risky topic with our audience, our audience mm -hmm. might be like, uh, I'm not really into that is it would depend on, for example, if it was like, if you got, if it was PewDiePie and Mr. Beast that wanted to debate it, we'd obviously host it, but, and it wouldn't have to be that, you know, they wouldn't have to be PewDiePie and Mr. Beast. But I mean, my idea, my point <laughs> is just that it's uh, it's a topic that's risky to be honest. I don't know if the audience would go for it, but we are open-minded, so I don't know. Like, if you're if you're really thinking deeply on it, email me. But also, Felix Nightowl, thanks for coming by. Says, has the debate already happened? It has, Felix. It already wrapped up. It was a fast one tonight. This is one of the faster ones we've had in a while. And then, Surgeon General, thanks for all of your work. Thanks for your being a moderator. And Hannah Anderson, thanks for being a moderator. Appreciate that. Tyler, good to see you there in the old live chat. I see you there. Thanks for all of your work, Mods. You do a fantastic job. Mark Madsen, thanks for coming by. We are going to take off, but want to say thanks, everybody. We love you guys. Seriously, it's been so encouraging. This channel has been just, it's been so fun, and it always is fun. And we've got a new debate coming up. Stefan Molyneux has agreed to debate someone's, we'll just say this, it's, a, it's going to be a big one. So keep an eye out as we are excited for that. And then you don't want to miss it. I am pumped about that. So thanks very much. We really do appreciate you guys. We hope you have a great rest of your night. And thanks again, Andy, for your help. Oh, you're on mute, Andrew. Oh, sorry. I didn't realize I was on mute. All right. Thank you, James. Thank you, everyone. Have a Thank good night. You. Appreciate you, Andy. Oh, that, wait, 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 one second. Twitch, what? I'm so sorry. Twitch, I, I have to say hi to... Twitch, I'm sorry, folks. I forgot to say hi to you. I forgot, like... In the last, like, 45 minutes, I, I forgot to jump into the Twitch chat. Twitch chat, good to see you. Tapotzel, thanks for coming by. Glad you were with us, as well as Surgeon General 777. Thanks for dropping in. And says, James is looking super beta tonight. Thanks so much. <laughs> it's funny. I, uh, I really do work on being as beta looking as I can with these suit jackets and the glasses. I don't know. What do you guys think? But Brooke Sparrow, good to see you in the old live chat. Holy squirrel. Surgeon General, thanks everybody. Thanks to Potzel for all of your your guys' help and support of the channel. Seriously, we love you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your night, and we'll see you tomorrow. Actually, we've got to get the event up. We're having a debate. Red Eagle Politics at all. Red Eagle Politics and others are going to be on tomorrow night. It's going to be juicy. I have I forgot to make. I was supposed to make the thumbnail, but I, I'm going to work on it. So I want to say thanks. Red, to oh, I think it's a uh, Red Eagle, Red Eagle Politics, and David Carlson against Zach and Gavin from the Vanguard. It's going to be amazing. So you don't want to miss it. I'm pumped, and thanks, Andy, for, for that. But, yes, thanks, everybody. We hope you have a, keep, have a great rest of your night. Keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable, and we'll see you next time.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.